multitudes of men and women are following Jesus right now in the world at the risk of their lives, or have been imprisoned, or arrested, or being persecuted. This is why we do Secret Church. We believe we have a responsibility to pray for, remember, support, encourage, serve the persecuted church around the world, particularly in a place where we have the kind of freedoms we have. We can't forget them. So Secret Church started and continues as a time to gather together people in all kinds of different locations to spend time in concentrated prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world and concentrated study of the word so that we might be equipped to spread the word alongside them in places of the world where it's hardest to do that. I want to invite you. Our next Secret Church is April 26, 2019. The topic we're going to dive into in the Word that night is prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God. I think many Christians are missing out on what God has designed for us in prayer and through prayer in our lives and the ways we can be involved in what God's doing around the world through prayer and fasting. So I hope that we will have that kind of time in the Word that will lead to greater, more intimate, more powerful prayer lives in ways that also serve our brothers and sisters around the world as we pray, as we intercede for them. So I invite you to be a part of Secret Church, April 26, 2019, Prayer, Fasting, and the Pursuit of God. That's a personal invite from David Platt to join us for the upcoming Secret Church 19 simulcast on April 26th. And we want to extend a special offer to our podcast community. If you register your group this week, use the coupon code podcast and you'll get 20% off of your registration. That's 20% off any group size for the Secret Church 19 simulcast. Just register your group by Sunday, March 31st, 11.50. 9 p.m. Eastern, and remember to use the code PODCAST at checkout. We hope you will join us. Some Christians struggle with the motivation to pray because they don't understand how their prayers fit with the purposes of a sovereign God. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast. The latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find today's sermon plus thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. Well, in today's sermon from Exodus chapters 32 through 34, David Platt helps us think through the mystery of prayer as he points us to the character and purposes of God. We'll see how God uses our prayers for the good of his people and ultimately for his glory in the world. Here's David with a sermon titled, The Mystery of Prayer and Our Purpose in the World from Exodus 32 through 34. Today, we got a lot to cover and this text is awesome, Uh, which they all are, of course. But this one is even more mind-blowing than others. So this last Friday night, uh, people gathered together all across this room here at Tyson's for a prayer gathering from 8 to, I'd say 8 to midnight, but it was more like 1230. Uh, It was awesome. Like these Friday night prayer gatherings are becoming like one, my my most favorite moments in this church. And uh, I... One more side note, Uh, so the Friday after Easter, so Friday, April 26th, we'll have another long night here from seven to one in the morning, so we like doing things late. Um, So that's going to be Secret Church, where we're going to dive into the subject of prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God, like an intense Bible study on prayer and fasting and the pursuit of God. Uh, This is something... Uh, we've done as a church before. This will be the first time it's hosted here, though. It's like a simulcast with like 60,000 other people, but it'll be hosted here. And there's still some, a small number of tickets available if you want to be a part of that in this room. So uh, secretchurch.org, you can go and get tickets there, uh, which we do to make sure that uh, we don't have too many people uh, coming. So anyway, secretchurch.org, Friday, April 26th, on prayer and fasting. But one of the things we're going to dive into tonight, that night is something I want us to think about today. And that is, how does, how does prayer work? 
Like, th- think about it. If God is sovereign, like we've seen over the last few weeks, if God is in control of all things and all of God's purposes will come to pass, then why pray? Like, does prayer really change anything? Does, does prayer actually have an effect? And today, I want you to see that it does. Today, I want you to see that your prayers affect the way God acts in the world. And if that idea does not blow your mind, then uh, you need to check your pulse. So I want you to see, I want you to see that God uses your prayers. I'm not just talking to the person beside you, in front of you, behind like your prayers to accomplish world-changing purposes. You might think that sounds like preacher talk, but it's not. I want to show it to you, all right? So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. Here's the setup. God was meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, giving his law to his people, including the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, while Moses is meeting with God up on the mountain, God's people, the Israelites, were down at the base of the mountain, indulging in idolatry. Like the blood of God's covenant with them had barely had time to dry. And they said, we're going to make a golden calf. We're going to worship it instead of God. They were celebrating this idol in their midst, diving into all kinds of immorality. So that's what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. So God says these words to Moses at the top of the mountain. Verse seven, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Did you catch that? God just said, I'm gonna pour out my holy, right, just wrath upon this people. So what does Moses do? He prays, listen to verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised, I will give it to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So God says, I'm gonna pour out my wrath on this people. Moses pleads, show mercy and listen to verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What is that about? God relented. God didn't do what he was going to do. That, that word relented is translated in some Bibles, God changed his mind. It's the same word that's used in other places in Scripture to describe how people change their minds. The problem is it's also used, the same word is used other places in Scripture, like Numbers 23, to describe how God doesn't change his mind. Or 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So what is happening here? Did God change his mind or not? In order to answer that question, I want to show you what we need to know. And this is in your notes. Hopefully you might write this down. Based not just on this passage, but on the entire Bible, what we need to know, what we need to realize is that God's perfections purposes and promises are all unchanging. Unchanging. They don't change. Let me unpack those one by one. God's perfections are unchanging. When I use that word, perfections, I'm thinking about the, talking about the perfect attributes of God, which never change. God is perfectly holy. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God is perfectly loving. That never changes. We saw this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is love, period. God is 
perfectly just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32, four. We could go on and on and on. God is perfectly omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent, eminent. God is perfectly self-existent, self-sufficient. And all of these attributes, God says in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1, 17, he does not change like shifting shadows. Hebrews 13, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. So the perfections of God are unchanging. And Moses knew this. Listen to his prayer from the start in verse 11. He says, O Lord, he uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh, which we studied two weeks ago. And as his prayer unfolds, Moses acknowledges so many of God's perfect attributes. He's acknowledging God's wrath, God's love, God's might, God's mercy, God's glory, God's goodness, all here. So we need to know that the perfections of God are unchanging, as are his purposes. Here in verse 12, Moses appeals to God's unchanging purposes. He said, you brought your people out of Egypt, we talked about this last week, for your praise among the Egyptians. Your purpose was not to kill them, but to save them for your name's sake among the nations. That purpose, Moses pleads, has not changed. So Moses is relaying in this prayer what we know from the rest of God's word. Psalm 33, 11, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Isaiah 46, God says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. We need to know God's purposes are unchanging and God's promises are unchanging. I mean, how about, how about verse 13 for boldness in Moses? He says, remember to God. Huh. Remember. To the omniscient God of all things, Moses has the appalling audacity to say to him, maybe you need to remember something. He starts listing names. Remember Abraham? Remember Isaac? Remember Israel? Moses points to these patriarchs we've read about in Genesis. says to God, you promised that you would give their family the land to which you are now leading them. You cannot go back on your word. Moses knows, but we'll read in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God promises and fulfills. Praise God for this reality. Praise God that his promises are real and reliable forever. God's promises are unchanging. So just, just pause for a minute here and think about this. In this passage that sparks a lot of question about what changes in God, Moses actually bases his entire prayer on that which never changes in God. Now, that brings us to verse 14 where the Bible tells us that the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. So back to our question, what does that mean? Because amidst all that is unchanging in God, it certainly seems like something changed here. And that leads to this other truth we need to know. Because while God's perfections, purposes, and promises are unchanging, God's plan is unfolding. His plan is unfolding, which, all right, to be clear, does not mean that God's plan is changing, as if God was surprised by Moses' prayer, decided to change his plans. God's plan is just as settled here as it is anywhere in history. But we have this story for a reason, because this story shows us how God's plan unfolds. This story shows us how God judges people in their sin. The people of God have sinned against God, seriously. And God says they have turned away, they are stiff-necked, and they are worthy of judgment, of death. What we talked about last week, that's true. Remember, this is the unchanging character of God. God is holy. He will judge people in their sin. Sin is an infinite offense in God's sight. Sin warrants God's just wrath. So verses nine and 10, we see God judges people in their sin, but then, but then God provides a mediator for sinners. This is the whole picture that Exodus has given us up to this point. Moses is the covenant mediator, the one who goes back and forth between God and his people. He's the one who stands before the people on behalf of God and stands before God on behalf of the people. And God is the one who set it up that way. So when you get to Exodus 32, look at the text back in verse seven, God says to Moses, go down to your people. Think about this. If God was going to destroy the Israelites on the spot, then why did he send Moses down? See it, God was planning to 
spare his people through Moses' mediation. The reality of Exodus 32 is crystal clear. God will demonstrate his judgment against this people unless, unless, unless somebody steps in and mediates on their behalf. And all of that squares with the unchanging perfections of God. God is holy and just. He will punish sin. At the same time, God is loving and merciful. And he will be true to his promise to save his people. So how does he do it? How is God true to his unchanging perfections, his unchanging promises, while fulfilling his unchanging purposes? God does it through an unfolding plan. He appoints a mediator to stand in the gap for sinners, to pray for them. And as Moses prays, so follow this, as Moses prays, he is not changing God's plan. As Moses prays, he is fulfilling God's plan. Now, that might sound a little confusing, but just think about other stories where we see this in the Bible. Think about Jonah, whom God sent to Nineveh to proclaim, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the word that was, Jonah was to proclaim. Nineveh was going to be destroyed because of their sin in 40 days. That's what God said. At the same time, what did God do? God sent a prophet to tell them that. Why would God do that? It's the same picture we're seeing here. God was judging the Ninevites in their sin. At the same time, he was sending a preacher to warn them so that Jonah, after spending a few days in the digestive system of a fish, does in fact warn them. And Jonah 3.10, listen to this verse. Jonah 3.10 says, when God saw what they did, because they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he'd said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's the same picture of what we see here in Exodus 32. God judges sin, and he provides a mediator that leads to salvation. But think about it. We don't ultimately look to Jonah in order to figure this one out. We look to Jesus. This is the gospel, right? Like in our sin, you and I stand under the judgment of a holy God. The just and right payment for sin before a holy God is death. That is what we deserve. But, but, praise be to God for his unfolding plan in which God has provided a mediator. God said to his son, go down, Jesus. Go down because people have become corrupt. They have turned away from me in idolatry and immorality. And unless somebody stands in the gap for them, they will experience my judgment. And Jesus comes down. He stands in the gap as a substitute for sinners. And by the gracious plan of God, because of Jesus' death on the cross for you and me, hallelujah, God relents his wrath from you and me. And we are saved. So see it, and here's the way I put it in your notes. God does not change in his reign over us, but he does change in his relationship to us. Meaning, you can bank your life on the sovereign reign of God, the unchanging perfections, purposes, and promises of God. You don't have to worry about whether or not God's word is true. You don't have to wonder if God's purposes will come to pass. You don't have to guess what God will be like tomorrow or 10 years from now or 10 billion years from now. All of these things are absolutely unchanging in God. But God, in his mercy, does change in his relationship to us. There, there was a day, a time, when I was under God's judgment in my sin. Until one day, God, in his grace, opened my eyes and my heart to what Jesus did on the cross for me. And on that day, God, God radically changed his relationship with me from being under his judgment to being under his mercy. And nothing in his perfections, purposes, or promises changed that day. But everything about his relationship to me changed. And if he has not done that in your life, he wants to. God desires for you, right where you are sitting, to know him as the savior of your sin, as the Lord of your life. If you will trust in Jesus, what he has done as your mediator, you are a sinner before a holy God deserving of judgment. The payment for sin is death. Yet when you trust in Jesus, his blood that covers over your sin, his death to forgive you of your sin, when you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, God will forgive you of your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, reconcile you into relationship with him that will last forever. Praise God. He does not change in his reign over us, but he will change his relationship to us when by faith we trust in Jesus, our mediator. <laughs> this is so awesome. And then it gets better because now realize this when you do when you trust in Jesus and you are now in relationship with God follow this do you get what Exodus 30 through 32 is teaching us yes God's perfections promises and purposes are unchanging and God uses 
our prayers to accomplish those purposes. God has purposes he's accomplishing in the world and he has set it up in such a way that our prayers, like your prayers, my prayers are the means by which God's purposes are accomplished. Like the unmistakable, unavoidable, unbelievable reality of Exodus 32 is that when we pray, God acts. Amen. <laughs> Did you see this as we were reading Exodus? Listen to Exodus 8, 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. <laughs> the Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign God over all, did what Moses asked. That should blow our minds. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Like, I'm not making this up. People pray and fire falls from heaven when they pray. People pray and the lame walk and the hungry eat and dead come to life. And we saw this a year ago when we walked through the book of Acts. Every major move of God in the book of Acts comes about directly in response to the prayers of his people. Get it. Get this through prayer. Through prayer, in prayer. God has called you and me not to watch history, but to shape history for the glory of God's great name. Now, let me be clear what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean God is like a weak king just sitting on his throne waiting for somebody to pray so we can just start doing something in the world. That's not what we're seeing in this text. Instead, we're seeing that when we pray, we take our God-ordained place and use our God-ordained privilege to participate with him in the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. I told you this was mind-blowing. And life-changing. This will change your uh, quiet time tomorrow morning with God. When you realize this, I think about what this means. How does this change our lives? How we need to pray? We need to then. If this is true, we need to plead for God's mercy upon those in need. Amen. And to plead. This is the privilege and responsibility we have before God and before others. When we pray, God acts. So we need, we need to pray. We need to pray like this. Like Moses prayed, God save. God show your mercy. Look, look later in, in this chapter, 32, chapter 32, verse 31. Listen to the pleading here. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Did you hear that? Like Moses says, God, do whatever it takes. Like whatever it takes. Take my own life if necessary, but please save them for your glory. Like, is this, is this, is this the way we pray? I, I fear that all, all too often we just kind of close our eyes and just start saying some words and it's just kind of, we're not f- feeling the wonder and the weight of what, what we have the privilege of doing right now Amen. when we pray. Particularly on behalf of those in need, like Friday night in our prayer gathering in this room, there was just a line of people just coming up and saying publicly in different ways, just sentence after sentence after, I need God's grace and mercy in this way, in my marriage, for my kids. I need, I need God's strength to be free from this addiction. I need God's strength as I walk through this cancer. My health and my heart and mine. And as they're sharing, I was just thinking, we have the privilege of standing in the gap for brothers and sisters in need and pleading and knowing, knowing that as we do, God hears us and God answers and, and God did according to their word Friday night. That, that'll make it come on Friday night when you realize that's what's at stake. And then, so for one another, and then, and then I was thinking about, I've been putting final touches on this book I've been working on that's a journey through remote regions in the Himalayas where I've just seen the collision of urgent spiritual and physical need. So physical need study was done in these villages about 10 years ago. Half the children were dying before their eighth birthday. One mom had 14 kids, two made it to adulthood. And they're dying of things like like diarrhea or simple infections that we can get a a quick antibiotic for, over the counter even. 
There's a cholera outbreak in one village. 60 people died in a matter of two days. Imagine your neighborhood having 60 people dead by Tuesday. There's poverty everywhere. One of the worst byproducts of that poverty is sex trafficking. The way traffickers will prey on people in these villages. Trafficker goes into a village, meets with a family, promises their daughter a better life as she will go with him down in the city. So they send her away, young girls taken down in the city where they're put in brothels and they are broken and abused by numerous so-called customers a day. Others taken in other countries. Talking about thousands of girls taken from these villages. Villages that are totally unreached by the gospel. Like nine million people in those villages, about a hundred followers of Jesus. Most have never even heard his name. So I've just been praying all over again this week, God have mercy, like just pleading for God's mercy and these men and women and their families, these girls, and I'm praying that God in his providence might use my pleading and the pleading of many others, like God wake us up to plead on behalf of those in urgent need, that God use our pleading to achieve his purposes in that place, like glorify your name, oh God, as the defender of the poor and the deliverer of the slave and the savior of the peoples. You love these people, you desire their salvation, you love, so do whatever it takes, use my life however you want, use this church however you want to show your mercy among them. We must plead for God's mercy. For people right around us, for people far from us, God has ordained your prayers, my prayers, to be the means by which his mercy is made known. Let's not be a prayerless people. Let's not be a people who just kind of casually every once in a while bow our heads before a meal. Like there's so much more that God has called us to here. It's a, there's a mystery to how this works. I don't understand it all, but I do know this. If my prayers, if your prayers have the power to bring about change, then we must pray. We must bleed for those who are in need. Which, which then leads into, right into Exodus 33. Oh, I gotta pick up the pace here. But uh, uh, let me just hit these briefly because you gotta see these things. So we plead for God's mercy upon those in need. We plead for God's presence and power among his people. Look at what happens next in Exodus 33, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out all these ites. Verse three, go up to a land flowing. Just keep going with me. Keep going with me. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But, so here's, here's the key. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are stiff-necked people. So God says, okay, the land is yours, but I won't go with you. In other words, you can have my promises, but you won't have my presence. And Moses says, no way. So he goes before God and he prays again. Skip down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you've also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways and I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So he pleads basically for God. He says, we cannot survive without you. So he prays until God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But what's interesting is the you there is singular. He's talking to Moses. That's not enough. Moses continues in verse 15. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses doesn't just want God's presence and power with him. He wants God's presence and power with them, with him and the people. Oh, see this picture of how we need to pray. We need to show, we need to, to plead for God to show his power and his presence in the midst of his people, to come before God and say, we cannot do it on our own. Say, what is it? Anything. So we saw two weeks ago. We cannot be the men and women, the singles, husbands, wives, moms, dads, grandparents, co-workers, neighbors, or witnesses God calls us to be on our own. We don't want to live on a natural plane. We want to live on a supernatural plane with the presence and power of God in our lives, in our church. Don't we want to see God move in power among us? Don't we want to see, don't we want to see God save multitudes of people on Easter Sunday? So we pray. We pray for God to show his power, not just on Easter, but every week. Church, don't we want, want to be a part of that in our lives and as a church that can only be explained by the hand of God at work? And Jonathan Edwards said, it is God's will that when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it will be preceded by the extraordinary prayers of his people. 
So let's pray. Let's pray for his presence and his power among us. Don't we want to not just be content, like to go through week after week in kind of a casual, routine, mundane version of religion? Like, no, we've been created for so much more. Like, we've been created to know God, to walk in the power of God in our lives and our families as a church. Let's plead for that. And then third, let's plead for God's glory to be made known in the world. (laughs) As if Moses has not been bold enough already, like God has relented wrath. He's promised his presence among his people. If I'm Moses, I'm content at that point. Like, it's been a good day. It's been a good day. Not Moses. Not Mo- He's prevailed with God in prayer, but he doesn't stop. Get down to verse 18 in chapter 33. He asked for one thing more. Moses said, now please show me your glory. Amen. Now what is that about? Like, think about who just made that request. This is the one guy who got to speak with God in a burning bush. That's pretty glorious. This is the man who was on the front lines of seeing God split a sea in half. This is, this is the guy who got to strike a rock and water came flowing out in the middle of the desert. This is the guy who prayed and bread came down from heaven. This is the guy who, when everybody else had to stay at the bottom of the mountain, he got to go up on the mountain to meet with God. If anyone had seen the glory of God, Moses had seen the glory of God. Amen. But here's the deal. He wanted more. Apparently, when you taste of the glory of God, you have an insatiable desire to see more and more and more and more. So God agrees to show him a glimpse of his glory. You read it with me in the next chapter, chapter 34, verse 5. This will have our memory verse from this week. And that the Lord descended in the clouds, stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So Moses asked, show me your glory, and God shows him his name. So see see this, I put in your notes how, based on this text, I would define the glory of God. The glory of God is the awesome display of who God is and all of his attributes. His holy, read incomparable. Just think of all these attributes that we just read. His holy mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, justice, and majesty. Glory of God is the display, the manifestation of who God is in all of His fullness. And this is what the last part of Exodus we're reading about is all about God's glory being made known, displayed, manifested among and through His people. So I want you to think about this with me there in your notes. We're going to fly here, but you've got to see this. You've got to see this. Think about worship at creation, where we started in this Bible reading plan just beginning of February. The dwelling place of God was where? Eden, right? Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. There was no need there. So we're reading in Exodus right now about a tabernacle where God's glory dwells in the middle of his people. There was no need for a tabernacle or a temple for God's glory to dwell there because all creation reflected God's glory. Adam and Eve were surrounded by God's glory on all sides until sin entered the world and everything changed. Yet even in the midst of sin, We saw God promised salvation, began calling people to himself. So then we came to Exodus, where we have now seen God deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt for what purpose? We talked about it last week. God saves us by his grace. God saves us for our good, and God saves us for his glory. Saves us for his glory, so for his worship at Mount Sinai. So this is where I want you to see the bookends between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Exodus. Because in the beginning of Genesis, the dwelling place of God was Eden. At the end of Exodus... The dwelling place of God is the tabernacle. So this physical structure set up by God to be the place where his glory dwelt among his people and where Aaron the priest would enter into God's presence. Tabernacle literally means dwelling place. The dwelling place of God. Now, if you've been reading the Bible, through the Bible reading plan this last week, let's be honest, you probably got a little bored uh, at a few points, like acacia wood, cubits. I just don't get it. I, I got a lot of things going on in my life and I'm trying to, apply acacia wood and cubits and this and that to my life. But this is where I want you to see. Every detail of what you read is significant. So I'll, just, I'll give you one example. So go, go with me to Exodus, Exodus 25. 
think back with me. So as you're turning to Exodus 25, think back with me to uh, uh, beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. God spoke and creation came into existence. In fact, you look back there, there are seven distinct creative acts in Genesis 1 as God creates a world that displays his glory. Seven creative, distinct creative acts and every single one of them starts with and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let there be this, and God said, let So there are seven creative acts distinctly, uh, seven distinct creative acts all prefaced by God said. So now you get to Exodus chapter 25. That's the start of the construction of the tabernacle. Let's count how many times we see the Lord said. You might underline it in your Bible. Exodus 25, verse one, the Lord said to Moses. That's where we start these instructions for getting together contributions and then how it's gonna look. Now fast forward to chapter 30. Chapter 30, I want you to keep a count here. Chapter 30, so we've got one. Chapter 30, verse 11. So we'll see this phrase over and over again. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses. Starts talking about the census tax to make this happen. Chapter 30, verse 11. Then you get to chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses. That's your third time. Verse 22. The Lord said to Moses. That's your fourth time. You get to verse 34. The Lord said to Moses. That's your fifth time. You get to chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses. That's your sixth time. And verse 12. The Lord said to Moses. There's seven times. Now, if you remember, back in Genesis, after those seven distinct creative acts, what did God do after all of that? He rested. Well, verse 13 in chapter 31, after the seventh time we see the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my what? Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. This is not, the point is, this is not accidental. This is intentional. What God is doing here, see it bookends. God is forming a new creation and he's saying I'm dwelling among my people again. Now obviously it's different than Eden because man is now separated from the inner part of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, where God's presence dwells in the tabernacle. And we see in Exodus 27 that the presence of God is guarded by cherubim on each side, holy of holies there, which remember at the end of Genesis 3, what guarded the entrance to Eden where the presence of God dwelt? cherubim. And you could only enter the garden from the east back in Genesis 3, which is just so happens to be the direction from which you enter into the tabernacle as well. Here's the deal. The tabernacle, all those details, acacia wood and cubits and everything, it's not, it's not just a place of worship. This is a picture of original creation, a piece of heaven on earth, a visible symbol of the glory of God dwelling in the middle of his people. And it's only made possible by sacrifices offered by Aaron the priest to cover over the people's sin. He wore, wore deliberate clothing. That's one of the things we read about, the reflected God's glory. He would offer sacrifices while everybody else gazed from the outside. Go one more place in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, very last chapter. See how the book ends in verse 34. Just imagine this scene. Exodus 40, 34. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacles. See this picture, God's glory dwelling over the tabernacle there, in the tabernacle. And Follow this. The people didn't just behold God's glory. The Israelites followed God's glory. That's in your notes. You pick it up in verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken, whenever the cloud was taken from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here's the picture. We will see as we continue reading through the Old Testament, we will see God's glory dwelling in the tabernacle, cloud over it, leading and guiding them as they go in different places. We'll see that happen all the way until they finally get to the place where they settle and a temple then replaces the tabernacle, a stationary place where the glory of God dwells among his people. But this is where I want us to pause, step out, zoom out for a minute and realize again, every story is whispering one name and see how all of this connects with the big picture of the Bible because this whole picture in Exodus is setting the stage one day for worship in the gospel when we get to the New Testament. Where do we see the dwelling place of God? In the New Testament, 
The dwelling place of God is Jesus, the man who embodied God's presence. You gotta see this. I'm gonna put it on the screen, John 1:14. This is John the disciple's introduction of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says the word, talking about Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt among us. You see that word dwelt? You know what that word is in the Greek? Tabernacled. Tabernacled. Jesus is the tabernacle. And read the rest of the verse. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory. And then I don't know what I was thinking when I put all this down here. Like we would have time to do all these things, but I'm gonna go through them anyway, just like fly through them. In John 2, we learn Jesus is the temple. John 1, 29, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus is the light of the world. A picture of the lamp in the tabernacle whose light never went out. Jesus is the bread on the table in the tabernacle. John 6, 35, Jesus is the bread of life. Ultimately, Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat. It is Jesus's blood that makes forgiveness of sins possible. The point is, Jesus is the glory of God with us. And in Jesus, the disciples beheld God's glory. And it gets better after that. So you keep going in the story of scripture and see worship in the church. Because Jesus, so follow this, dies on the cross, rises from the grave, ascends into heaven. So does that mean there's no longer visible evidence of the dwelling of God with us anymore? No tabernacle, no temple, no Jesus? Oh, it's not. What it means, God's glory is dwelling among us. Follow this, because once Jesus ascends into heaven, God sends his presence to his people and the dwelling place of God becomes us. The people who possess God's presence. First, uh, you, you might think, are you making this up? Look at the Bible. First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit lives in you. The church has become God's dwelling. God's temple, tabernacle, and not just the church in general, but you as a follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Like Christian, follower of Christ. Do you get this? The glory of God dwells in you. I don't think you're getting this. Like, let, let, let me give you a picture. Let me give you a picture. Like, uh, if you read Exodus 33, even if you didn't, just picture this. There was a moment where Moses goes into the tent of meeting to meet with God. And as soon as he starts to go toward the tent of meeting, the Bible says all the Israelites stood outside their, their tent and watched. So just picture the scene. Like tens of thousands of people standing outside their tent in silent awe as they watched this man walk in front of them out to a tent where there's a cloud that rests over the tent and everybody's standing in silent awe because there is a man who is meeting with God. Amen. Now, take that scene for a second and realize what is happening right now because we have not gathered together to watch me or anybody else go into a tent. That's not what's brought us together. And we're not watching any, somebody else go into the tent. Amen. That tent is available to every sinner in this room, campus, any campus who trusts in Jesus. Amen. And not just, it's not a tent that's available to you to go to, to pray. You don't have to go to a building. The beauty is you are the tent. <laughs> You're the tent. The glory of God dwells in you. Like, do you realize this? The privilege we have to pray before God is a privilege Old Testament saints could have only longed for. And you and I can do it anytime, anywhere. We pray, we pray, that's why we pray. And then think about it, now think about this. We possess his presence, so as we live lives that reflect his glory, what happens? What we say at the end of every service, great commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. And as we go, we are tabernacles, we are temples, we are living manifestations of the compassion of God, the love of God. That's what we're called to be in our lives, in this world. And as we go, the nations will witness God's glory. Think about this. When the people of God in the Old Testament would transport the tabernacle, it was a picture of the surrounding nations of the glory of God in their midst. And now, with our bodies as his temple, his tabernacle, we spread his glory wherever we go. The wonder of the gospel, God's glory is seen in temples everywhere. And it's not, not talking about buildings made by human hands. We're talking about lives changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And they go as a testimony to his glory all over Washington, D.C. and all over the world. 
Even greater than, like, follow with me. Even greater than God's glory in Jesus. As we we think, well, that's, that's, how do you get more glorious than that? That's why he said in John 14, you'll do even greater things than me. Because it's not just going to be the glory of God in one person. It's going to be the glory of God in all my people spreading all over the world for the spread of my grace, my love, my compassion, manifestation of all these characteristics. So, ah, people of God, let's fill Metro Washington. Let's fill the earth with his glory as we make disciples and multiply churches. Because that's where all history is headed. So, close here. It's headed to worship in the new creation where the dwelling place of God will be heaven. The place where we will forever delight in God's presence. Oh, I wish we had time to dive more into detail here, but you look at Revelation chapter 21 and what you'll find is new heaven and new earth. It's described, and again, you'll see all kinds of measurements in there and be like, oh, let me see what picture. Uh, let's draw an architectural rendering of heaven. But you, if you get too caught up there, you'll miss the point because what you'll do is you, as you read about heaven, you'll read that it's shaped like a cube. And you think, why would it be shaped like a cube? Well, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was shaped like a cube. It's a picture of how the perfect dwelling place of God will be where we will live. It's like living in the Holy of Holies. And then you keep going and you see all this gold in the tabernacle here and you'll see heaven is a place of pure gold. The whole point is not, oh, it's gonna be like, just like our Western economic prosperity. Like, no, don't miss the point. The whole point is, it's gonna be the dwelling place of God with men and women. Like, we are gonna be with him. And you see the, the priests with things written on their foreheads in the, the whole picture of the tabernacle, when they would go into the presence of God, Aaron and the priests, they'd be wearing on his head the name of the Lord. What you find in Revelation chapter 22 is his name will be on our heads. We will be like, like priests, unhindered access to God to enjoy his presence forever and ever and ever. And all creation will be filled with God's glory. Everything in the new heaven, the new earth, filled with the glory of God. All creation restored to Jesus. No more crying, no more pain, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more hurts, no more I need this and this and this and this because we will forever delight in God's presence. So, and think about it, think about it. How does this drive the way we pray? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we pray. We plead for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Revelation chapter eight is another great text because you look at Revelation eight and what you find is that the prayers of God's people are like incense before God throughout history. Every one of them, not one of them in vain. Every one of them been stored up and there's coming a day when the kingdom's gonna come and new creation's gonna be a reality and it's gonna be in response to the prayers of God's people throughout history. Every time you pray, Father in heaven, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not one of those prayers is in vain. One day God is gonna bring about the fruition of that prayer. So brothers and sisters, put all this together. I exhort you, pray like it matters. Pray like it matters. I plead for God's mercy on those in need right around us for one another as brothers and sisters in the church. Let's plead. Take our God-given place praying for mercy in each other together in smaller groups and Friday night gatherings, whatever it might be, and, and not just here, for men and women around the world in need. Like God has given us the privilege. Do you realize that like, this will change your Monday morning when you realize before you get out of bed, you can join in what God is doing in North Korea. You can join in what God is doing in the heart of the Middle East before you even set your feet on the floor in the morning. By prayer, you have the privilege of participating with God and what he's doing around the world. This is awesome. So plead for those in need. Let's plead for God's presence and power among us as his people. Let's ask God to do in and through McLean Bible Church that which can only be attributed to his hand at work. And let's plead for God's glory on the earth. Let's plead for the hallowing of God's name across Washington, D.C. Let's plead for the hallowing of God's name among the nations. And as we do, as we plead and plead some more and plead some more, let's do it confident that just like Scripture promises, one day we will see his face in all of his glory and all of his unchanging perfections, all of his unchanging purposes and promises will come to pass in the ever full unfolding plan that you and I have the privilege of playing a part in today. Let's live in that today. Let's pray.
Oh, God. I don't even know how to grasp the fullness of what I've just preached, what we've just seen in your word. But God, we praise you for this privilege. This privilege of communion with you right now in prayer that you, the same God who did all this in the book of Exodus, you're, you're here with us right now. You're listening to our hearts. This prayer that I'm praying on behalf of people all across Washington, D.C. right now gathered together as McLean Bible Church, you're hearing us. And so we just we pray. Teach us to pray. Help us to experience all that you've designed for us in prayer. God, we come with all kinds of needs in our lives right now. And uh, God, I pray for your mercy. Pray for your mercy across this church. I pray for your mercy specifically for people right now who have not put their trust in Jesus. Who's I'm praying right now, right now they're under your judgment in their sin. God have mercy, we pray. Act, I open eyes right now to trust in Jesus. I pray that you would do that supernatural work right now in this room and other campuses. Save people from sin. Shower your mercy in all the ways we need. And God, please, please show your presence and your power among us. Lift our eyes above the mundane to see you in all your glory and to plead for you to work in ways that can only be explained by your hand. God, we ask, we ask for more of your glory. Show more of your glory. Manifest, display more of your glory. In this church, across our city, God, we pray for your name to be hallowed in Washington, D.C. Cause your name to be known as holy and compassionate and gracious. And use us as temples of your Holy Spirit this week for the spread of your glory in that way. And God, we pray for the hallowing of your name among the nations. We pray that you would use our church as an instrument in your hands to make your goodness, your grace, your glory known to the ends of the earth. Oh God, thank you for this privilege. Jesus, thank you for making it possible. Help us to take full advantage of it in our lives. Today, tomorrow, this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch today's full sermon or download the free discussion questions, you can do all that and more at our website, radical.net. And don't forget, if you register your group for Secret Church 19 this week, you can use the coupon code podcast to get 20% off of your registration. The theme this year for Secret Church is prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God. And we are extremely excited about what God is going to do on that momentous night. We just announced that our people focused this year are the Somalis of East Africa. Of course, every year at Secret Church, we gather to study God's Word and pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for following Christ. And getting the gospel to the Somalis is very difficult, for following Christ often carries a death sentence. So we hope you will join us this year as we pray for the Somalis of East Africa. You can learn more about Secret Church by visiting secretchurch.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us at Radical.net.